So, 2 Samuel chapter 5, 2 Samuel 5, and working our way through the life of David. And uh, we started last year, uh, which, which feels like five years ago, but we started the life of David from the middle of 1 Samuel and uh, his anointing. That's going to play a role in our text here this morning. So it's on page 277 of your pew Bibles. If, if you do not have a Bible, you feel free to take that home. So if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's Word. The writer of 2 Samuel writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord and anointed him king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. At Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David, and David said on that day, Whoever would strike... Uh, the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from, from Milo inward. And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew the Lord had established him king over Israel, that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shammuah, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliadab, and Eliphalet. Those will all be on your test at the end. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to the search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them to my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore the name of that place is called Baal Perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of the Raphaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up. Go around to the rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to, Ge- to Gezer. Let's go Lord in prayer. Father, we always ask the same thing every time we gather open every word. We ask that you would honor it, that you would open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and ears, our mouth, our hands, our feet. Our entire being, body and soul, be transformed by the power of the gospel as revealed in your word. That is all that we ask. Would you be so kind as to give us that? May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You may recall last week we talked a lot about 
peaceful transition of power and how really miraculous that is in the United States of America from George Washington now all the way to President Biden. And what we had in David's time was the complete opposite, civil war in order to have such power. But being that we have the crowning of David here, another crowning of David, I thought, why not look a little closer to some of those inaugurations, the closest thing we have. So this is for your education, since we're all homeschoolers now. Um, Here are five fast facts about uh, presidential inaugurations. I bet most of you didn't even know. Okay, you ready for this? Who gave the longest speech in inauguration history? Anyone know other than our history professor here? You're not allowed. Mark? Boom, looky there. I tell you what, man, I am impressed. Someone's got their uh, uh, square of all human knowledge out, I, I have no doubt. He, he saw the notes beforehand. I'm, I'm on to you, buddy. William Henry Harrison gave the longest speech about uh, two hours long. I don't hear any complaints. It was uh, over 80, about 8,500 word long speech. That is a long speech. And he gave it in the pouring rain. And historians, it's probably not accurate, historians, what they like to suggest is that rain that he stood out in two hours to give that long-winded speech, and no doubt he was a, a Baptist, um, he got a cold a few weeks later. That cold got turned into pneumonia, and on his 31st day in office, he died. Not only did he give the longest inauguration speech, he served as the shortest tenure of any president. So he's remembered for one thing. And that was like minute one of his (laughs) administration. Who gave the shortest speech? This is who you're going to want as your preacher. It was none other than George Washington himself. In 1793, his entire speech was 135 words. My goodness, that that is a short speech. Hey, everybody, love Jesus. Let's pray. That's pretty much what that is. Thirdly, Oh, I got a picture of George Washington. There he is, giving a famous painting of his inauguration, 1793. Uh, Thirdly, uh, the first president not to attend his successor's inauguration was John Adams. Now, this has been threatened in recent years, but it hasn't happened in a long time. Uh, By the way, the second president to do this was his son, John Quincy Adams, who didn't attend uh, Andrew Jackson's inauguration. Fourthly, only one president was sworn in by his father. That is my favorite president, so I had to throw him in there. And that is keeping it cool with Calvin Coolidge. He's my boy. He is my boy. I'm amazed he didn't have the shortest inauguration speech. But Finally, several presidents, particularly more recently, have utilized uh, memorabilia from Abraham Lincoln. This would be Teddy Roosevelt or one of Lincoln's rings. Barack Obama have a picture of Obama uh, swearing in on... um, uh, Lincoln's Bible, and um, both, uh, by the way, President Trump was sworn in on Lincoln's Bible. Obama added he really wanted Lincoln imagery. He got on a train, left Illinois, got on a train to travel to D.C. for his inauguration, the same trail that Lincoln followed, leading to his inauguration. But the reason I think these things are significant is because uh, none of these presidents, and we've had quite a few since, none of them was inaugurated by the very people they were just trying to defeat in battle. David is. That's got to be awkward. Here we see David after, after a long, long-fought effort 
to, to, to fulfill his calling in life, to be crowned king over Israel, he finally reached the, that moment, and it is by the hands of those who were just trying to defeat him. So what we see here is David taking the crown. And there's four words I want you to remember. If you've got the, uh, the, the outline, they're, they're right there with you. Four words that, that I want us to focus in here this morning. The first is king. King. David here, and particularly in these opening uh, verses of chapter 5, is crowned king. But what does that mean exactly? What, what sort of king is he called to be? What is it they wanted him to grasp at his own inauguration? The first thing they want David to see, and that, that we need to see that David becomes, that he is king over all of Israel. Notice there in verse 1 that all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. Now that is bizarre. That is bizarre language. But if you know your Bible, it's, it's not unique, is it? You should know exactly where this language comes from. It comes from the creation account, Genesis 2. Remember that, that, that Adam describes his wife as being bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Let me just add a footnote because I like to throw this in here. The first words Adam ever spoke, at least in the Bible, to his wife was a love poem. So those of you who, who watch a lot of Disney princesses, I, I figured you would like that little factoid. But he, he immediately realizes that his wife is both the same, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. But she is different. I shall call you not man, but woe man. Right? He, he recognizes right away there is equality, there is distinction. But because this is creation language, David must remember he is king over all of Israel. He isn't king just of Judah or even of Benjamin. He is king over all of Israel. This is why Moses told the Israelites that if the day came that they would crown a king, they were to never to crown a foreigner. Thus, thus, thus the, the, the representative, uh, political representative of Israel must understand that he is one of them. Yes, he may be from a specific tribe, but he is, of a, he is a descendant of Abraham. They are all in this together. Now, David remembers this commitment later on in his uh, battles and wars and civil war with his son Absalom. Is, is he, he states this later in 2 Timothy, which I didn't put up there, 2 Samuel rather. You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then? Should you be the last to bring back the king, right? You are my bone. You are my flesh. He remembered it to the day of his death. He is to represent everyone. Secondly, David must see that he is merely king. He is merely a king. Again, that language, bone and flesh, means he is not divine. He is a created being. And as a created being, he is equal to all of his subjects. The king and the subjects are equal. This is really one of the most radical points made in the American Revolutionary War, is that the king and his subjects are equal. Is the old slogan was, um, is, is the king above the law? Is the law above the king? And in classic monarchy, the king is above the law. can do whatever he wants. But in the West, particularly as, as Christianity, Protestant Christianity in particular, began to, 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 to show his influence, that changed. Even the king is under law. Why? We're all under the law. We hold that even today. And this is a lesson that David must learn. In the eyes of God, David is not above his people. The people are not below David. That is one of the most consistent errors of all leaders, not just political leaders. 
whether you're head of the party planning committee, whether you are the president of the United States. Any, if you ever know, I've noticed this in local church, the smallest bit of, of authority and, and influence and power someone has, doesn't matter how small it is, it goes to their heads. Have you noticed this? I mean, I've noticed in church life. I'm sure you've noticed it in, 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 in your personal life, right? The smallest bit of responsibility, it, it oftentimes goes too far. Well, ultimately, this is a reminder to us that leaders must never forget who they are and who they are not. David is king, but he is merely king, and he is not more than that. Thirdly, they want David to see that he is called. He's appointed by God for this position. Notice the language starting in verse 3. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. They anointed him king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and, and then from there he gives the rest of his, the years of his reign. You'll notice here in the entire story, uh, David didn't want the job because that, he grew up wanting that job, right? I was watching the Olympics. I was watching the, the marathon runners, and the American, for the first time in decades, got third place, got bronze. Okay? And so they were, during the race, when she was right there up there in the front, uh, and they were doing all this stuff, and one of the things they had was an old school project she had where she had wrote, I want to uh, win a gold medal in the Olympics. And she's just a little girl. Well, every 10 minutes, they kept showing that little uh, school project over and over and over again. And it's certainly like, look, this dream has is, is now become reality. A lot of elections I've seen for the presidency, there's been, they'll find that school project. Uh, when I grow up, I want to be president, which we all did at some point. And, and, well, that's not David here. David didn't grow up wanting to be king over Israel. He seemed to be content slaying lions and bears and watching sheep. He didn't grow up wanting this position. Rather, he was called to this position. And thus, that calling is what will lead him and to, to lead well, so long as he remembers he's called by God and will help him persevere when times get tough. That's one of the things I like to tell young ministers, at least young men who are considering going into ministry. There's a basic question we all ask, right? Could you do anything else? If the answer is yes, you may not be called to this yes, okay? Because you need a calling whenever everyone's against you, people get petty, and just life happens, right? A lot of positions are like that. That If you are called, you can persevere. Calling is what will get you up in the, mor in the morning. David here is anointed by God. It's his third anointing, Samuel, and then in Hebron, and now here with the elders. He's anointed by God. And the congregation, his people, recognize it. And thus this calling predates him. In fact, that is a very important point David needs to remember. He was given this position of a power by God himself. In fact, this was predicted. And go back to Genesis 15. And those who've been coming on Wednesday nights, you should be familiar with this text. This is the scene where Abraham walks through the severed carcasses. I'm not going to explain that. This lets you think what in the world. But, but God seals that covenant with, with Abraham. And there's this line in there. It says, the sun goes down, right? Smoking pit, right? So he walks through. You know, the God walks through it. So he signs the covenant. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the river of Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephraim, remember the Rephraim, will come to them, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Well, guess where David goes next? To the Jebusites. You see, it was part of God's long-term plan with the people of Israel to deal with the Rephraim, which Joshua mostly does. 
The Jebusites, which David deals with immediately following his crowning. David is called by God to this position. And that will keep you humble in positions of power. Fourthly, finally, as king, David is leader. Consider if we were to take chapter 5 as David's first hundred days in office. It's more complicated than that, but just for the sake of simplicity, let's pretend that is what's going on here. What a busy hundred days this is. He's crowned in verse 3. He chooses Jerusalem as his capital has to kick out the Jebusites. Thirdly, he builds a place in the new capital, verses 11 through 12. So he he builds a palace there in Jerusalem, the city of of David, Uh, much in the same way that uh, uh, we had a federal government without a capital. Right, it was eventually a compromise was that be Washington D.C. So too, David has to find a capital. And fourthly, he wars against the Philistines, and then that starts there in verse 17 to, to the end of the chapter. That's a busy hundred days. Now, none of these are easy decisions. At each stage, the writer of, of this chapter wants us to, to to see how David chooses wisdom over uh, convenience. He chooses the needs of others over personal preference. And ultimately, he seeks to know and to do the will of God above all things, particularly in the story of the Philistines. He inquires of the Lord what the will of God is. Notice there, David did as the Lord had commanded him. That is the essence of a true leader, one with character, one with spiritual depth, and one with selflessness. David is to lead as king. So we see there, king. He is crowned king. And if you were to read through this passage in one uh, one quick reading, that's what you're going to get. David's crowned king, and that is very important. There's a second word you need to see here. That's the word shepherd. We must move quickly. The responsibilities of the king are evident enough. What type of king is he to be? He is to be a shepherd. Notice, go back to verse 2. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be, you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. And you can't get more clear than that, can you? Notice that, that the connection between prince and shepherd are parallels. You shall be shepherd, you shall be prince. What kind of king is he to be? He is to be shepherd. Now, if you read this chapter, you may miss some of it, but it's all over the place. Can I prove it to you? We have to move, move quickly here. Most notable in the realm of shepherd is the battles against the Philistines. Notice there's two battles in verses 17 to 25 against the Philistines. In the first battle, the Lord instructs David to face them head on. In the second battle, he instructs David to attack from the rear. In both cases, David defeats them. Notice two things. First of all, notice the locations here. In both battles, they take place, notice verse 18 and 22, in the valley of the Rephaim. Throughout the Old Testament, Rephaim has a single meaning. I think I can prove it to you from, from the Bible. It has a single meaning. Giants. Let me see if I can prove it to you. Deuteronomy 3.11, for only Og, the king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Notice there, it's a proper noun. A remnant of the Rephaim. And it goes on to describe King Og. Behold, his bed was a bed of iron. So, so not a, a, a Tempur-Pedic. Nine cubits was his length and four cubits his breadth, according to the common. Now, for those of you who, who grew up in the city, you don't measure with cubits. You need to know that that is a big bed. That is not a king-side bed. That is a giant's bed, okay? We can all fit on it, right? 
Um, and that is a big, big bed. And notice he's, he's a remnant of the Rephaim. Likewise, in 2 Samuel 21, Ishbenab, that too will be on your quiz, one of the descendants of the Rephaim, Hebrew words Rephaim, but we translate it giants. That's what it's describing. Whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze. If it weighs like one bronze, that's probably going to be a heavy you know, spear, right? Uh, and who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. The Rephaim are are giants, plain and simple. I think I got one more here. There was war at Gath where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand, six toes on each foot, 24 in number. He also was descended from the Rephaim, is the Hebrew word, descended from the giants. Now, why is that so important? The valley of the Rephaim literally means the valley of giants. And that name, the valley of the giants, goes back to the time of Joshua when he deals with the Rephaim. Now, regardless of its genesis, isn't it odd that after the sacking of Jerusalem, the first battle of notes takes place against Philistines in a place called Giants? Can you think of a story about a Philistine who was a Giants? How did David defeat that Giants? Not with a sword, but with a sling. Not as king, but as shepherd. We saw saw the the location. Note also the language. Notice there in verse 24, it says that David struck down the Philistines. That language isn't an accident. If you go back to 1 Samuel 17, the story of David and Goliath, your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be one of them. He's defied the armies of the living God. Notice there, and you keep reading, and I can give you another example in that chapter. If I strike down lions and bears, I can strike down the giants. What does David do here? He strikes down the Philistines in the Valley of the Giants. And in that story with David and Goliath, there's this weird scene, right? David shows up. No one else wants to fight the giant. They're all scared, right? David shows up. This little teenager, he says, I'll throw down with him. I ain't scared. And what does Saul say? Like, I've got the best armor money can buy, right? Here, wear this. And if you remember the VeggieTales one, it covers his entire body. And poor Junior couldn't fight Goliath, right? The big pickle. So, so what does David do? He says, I don't want the armor of a king. I want the wardrobe of a shepherd. What do we have here? We have one who's king, but we're told nothing of his wardrobe when he goes to battle. Why? He goes to fight, not as king, but as a shepherd. Still. All those battles, all those struggles, all that frustration he faced when Saul was hunting him was to prepare him for this moment. He will rule as king, as shepherd. So you read the rest of the Bible. It will often portray David more as a shepherd than he will as king. Let me give you just one example. Psalm 78. He chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. Why? I'll tell you why. Because from following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. It's almost as if the writer of this psalm read 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 2. You led us out as the shepherd of the sheep, the fold of, of God. After all, weren't we introduced to David as a shepherd? Go back. And David says to Saul, your servant, I've been keeping sheep my whole life. That's what God has called David to be, a shepherd. The essence of biblical leadership is that of shepherd. He is called to be shepherd. The third word you need to remember here this morning, I want you to see, is the word priests. 
Not only is David to reign as a shepherd, he is to rule also as priests. Now, let me just pause here and say, if you've been coming on Wednesday nights, a few months ago, we spent, we spent an entire evening looking at this very issue when we talked about Melchizedek. So I don't want to rehash all that. It would take another hour to, to do all of that. But let me just give you the highlights from, from this passage and, and other passage about the life of David. First of all, David was prophetically foretold to be a type of priest. 1 Samuel 2, uh, verse 35, uh, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to my heart and mind. Secondly, David is anointed here as a priest king. In 1 Samuel 16, uh, this is the anointing of David, uh, that you notice that the language is how you would anoint a priest. Samuel anoints David as king, future king, but does it in a ceremony that is reminiscent of how you would anoint a priest for that office. And you'll note here in 2 Samuel 5, he is anointed again. That's the language of what you would give a priest. Thirdly, we, we see later is that, in fact, we're coming up on it next, next week, Lord willing. David establishes the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem. In this chapter, Jerusalem becomes his home base. Now, what is the genesis of Jerusalem? It's the city of Melchizedek, the king of Salem, Jerusalem. He is, is a higher office of, 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 of priest, if you will. So not only does he establish Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, he then brings the Ark of the Covenant dressed as a priest, leading priest, to Jerusalem, where he will build the, 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 uh, uh, ta the tabernacle. So he acts as priest. And that's the story where he wears the priestly ephod and his wife doesn't like it because everyone's going live on Instagram on it. Finally, David prays as a priest. In this chapter, David inquires of the Lord before going out to battle. That would be the job of the priest. That was Samuel's job before he died. David is now doing it. Clearly then, there are priestly overtones with David. And he is a type of priest, like Melchizedek is a type of priest. And again, we, we can but, but just mention it in, in highlighting. So the question then is, is what, what do we do with this? Who cares? Maybe you're here today, well, that's a fascinating Bible study preacher, but I'm getting hungry, can we move on? I would say these things are very important. One, I, I'm afraid that if we're not careful, we're going to miss the boat here. One of the things we may be tempted to do is say, you know what, this chapter is a great chapter to talk about leadership. And it is a great chapter to talk about leadership. What does a godly leader look like? And I could point to these three terms. King, shepherd, and priest. I think, man, if you start there and you do a, a good Bible study on what it means to lead in, in, in that way, I, I think, I think you, you've done yourself some, some good. Clearly, the Bible proclaims uh, a leadership as a shepherding rule, as a spiritual journey and, and leadership, all of that sort of stuff. And you can apply that to, to your home as, as a husband and wife, as, as, as an employee, your employer, uh, all those sort of areas. But if that's what we do, we've missed the points. There's one other word we have to see in this text, and, and I hope you've already seen it. And that, of course, is the word Christ. It's Christ. David is presented as Israel's royal priest and shepherd. In that role, he is to lead the people of God politically and spiritually. Thus, David is redeemer. David is leader. David is king. Yet as the story unfolds, what happens to David is what has happened to every 
royal priest and royal shepherd in the Bible. Whether you name him Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or Joseph or Moses or Joshua or Aaron or Samuel. The language of royal priesthood and the royal shepherd abounds throughout. And in every single one, there is failure. There is the hope of redemption. There is the hope of peace. There is the hope that the curse would be removed and, 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 and we would dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And in every single case, there is failure. And so as we read this chapter, the hope is this guy is different. This guy is ready. This guy will lead us to a true promised land. And in that very chapter where all this hope is given, the writer of 2 Samuel is very shrewd. I bet you missed it because you can't pronounce their names. We are told already what his downfall will be. Look at, look at what it says down there in verse 13. Here he is, just crowned king. Moved his capital from Hebron. He was there for six months. He's moved to Jerusalem. He has conquered Jerusalem. Everything's set it up. Everything's going great. His poll numbers are through the roof, right? Everything is just wonderful. People love him. He's a great political leader. His heart is starting to go the way of Saul. David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem after he came from Hebron. And more sons and daughters were born. And remember, David already has two wives. These are the names of those born to him in Jerusalem. And chances are, you read that list, you don't recognize hardly any of them. Two of them will be mentioned again, one most famous is Solomon. We've not gotten to that story yet, have we? You see what the writer is doing? Prepare yourself, reader. It's all downhill from here. And this is where the story of Christ comes in. David was a great leader. A great leader of men. A great a great political leader, a great king. He was terrible in the home. For all he gained in the world, he lost it all at the dinner table. So he was king, he was shepherd, and he was priest. And the reader is left wondering, will he ever have a royal priest? Will we ever have a royal shepherd that is true and greater than this? And surely after six years, you know the answer to that, don't you? It is Christ. Christ is the one that we are looking for. Christ is the true and better David. He is the king who brings a true and greater kingdom, not made of hands that David will make, where blood must be shed for his own glory, but rather he sheds his own blood for his glory. He brings a kingdom, not limited by the world of politics and power, but is an eternal kingdom. This world is not ready for. He is a true and better shepherd who lays his life down for his sheep. He is a true and better priest who, as we sang earlier, intercedes on our behalf as both redeemer and as lamb. He's the priest who offers himself as the true and great sacrifice, but he himself offers the sacrifice. He is truly redeemer. So let us not read the crowning of David without seeing the exaltation of Christ. He is the true hope of Israel, not David. And the temptation is we come to this passage thinking, if only we had a leader like that. 
If only we could elect someone like that. If only my office was run by someone like that. If only my husband was like this. If only my friends were like this. If only more leaders were like this. And there may be some truth to some of that. But the point of the text is we already have the royal priest. We already have the royal shepherd. And he is risen from the dead. He is the true hope of Israel. He is the true hope of the world. He is not just another leader. And here we stand in the middle of crazy chaos. My sister right now is worried to death about a potential Category 5 hurricane going to hit her hometown. Right now, there is chaos on the other end of the world and right here at home. And to think that COVID has become headline story number four, it's that bad. And the temptation is to think, if only we had this, if only we tried this, and dear Christian, we have the answer. It's the answer for our world. It's the answer for our community. It's the answer for your marriage. It's the answer for your home. It's the answer for your brokenness. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. He is our king. He is our shepherd. He is our priest. He is our Savior. And let's not ever, ever take our eyes off of that simple truth. Let's pray.